Welcome to Season of the Bitch, where we believe sex work is work, but that all work kind of sucks. Today we have Walida, Zoe, and Laura. And today we have a really cool topic. We're going to talk about sex work and about sex workers. Um, Sex work has always felt, even within feminist circles, like it exists in a sort of silo separate from other issues of labor, separate from other issues of feminism. But considering we've all heard sex work referred to as the, quote, oldest profession, and as it's mostly women who do this work, frankly, doesn't that make it the oldest labor and feminist issue? Mm. In fact, this book opens with a long history going back centuries on what can be considered the original feminists and original feminist movements of sex workers. Um, And today we have with us an incredible guest, Molly Smith, co-author of Revolting Prostitutes, The Fight for Sex Workers' Rights. Woo! Um, Welcome! Welcome. Yay, welcome. So happy to have you here. Um, Molly, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and why you and Juno Mack wrote this book? Hi. Uh, so thank you so much um, for inviting me slash us onto this podcast. Um, so just to briefly introduce myself, I'm Molly, as you said. Um, I'm based in Scotland. Um, and I've been doing sex work and sex work activism for nearly a decade um and also to briefly maybe introduce Juno who um can't be here we 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 tried doing a a podcast um together over Skype she's based in London at the beginning of the kind of book promo uh time and the technology of it was just uh really (laughs) bad so we said (laughs) that that we would never go on a podcast again where one of us was sat in Edinburgh and the other was in London and then the podcast people were like sat in a third place because it was just so stressful yeah Um, (laughs) <laughs> but yeah, so she, um, like me, uh, has also been involved in sex work and sex work organising for, again, like pretty much a decade now. Um, and we work together in Swarm, which is um, a sex worker rights organisation based in London and Glasgow um, for a number of years before we wrote this book together. Um, so a lot of our kind of thinking um, kind of grew up together through that shared work, I guess. Um, yeah. That's awesome. So what was, I know you just said you guys are based in different cities. So what was the process like writing this book with two authors? Cause it has a super cohesive voice. Like, did you split up the chapters or yeah. How did you do that? Yeah. Um, it was definitely a really interesting process and, um, it took much longer than we expected. Uh, well, I think we were really ambitious um, and thought we could write it in basically a year. And in retrospect, that was um, a ridiculous thing to imagine we could do. Um, and yeah, loads of the, so it took about two years and loads of the first, loads of loads of the time was kind of taken up in like learning how to write a book rather than like right. producing content or I mean, the two kind of things are intertwined, right? Um, and I don't know, I think, um, me and Juno, um, because we have worked together um, on kind of yeah on sex worker activism for so long, uh, we were very used to uh, kind of the process of writing work collectively and like editing each other's work or having our work edited by a peer. Um, so 
we did have a kind of couple of conversations about like how to be gentle and kind with like um each other's writing but Mm -hmm. to be honest um we didn't really kind of we there were loads like writing the book was really difficult in loads of different ways but none of them were to do with the fact that there were two of us writing it Mm. um it was always um I feel like in a lot of ways that was what enabled us to finish the book at all because um yeah if if uh if we hadn't had each other like there that we were sort of accountable to and like reliant on and like getting emotional support from each other I doubt either of us on our own would have been able to finish um anything like this book so yeah well it was extremely good extremely well written yeah absolutely Um, very well researched uh and I really do encourage everyone to go out and buy it and read it I, like I said earlier, you sort of open this book with a, with a centuries-long history of, of sex activism, sex worker activism, and, and the book sort of evolves naturally to talking about what sex work is like now and what sex workers have to go through globally and the different types of laws that are either meant to harm or hurt um, mm-hmm. the sex worker industry. But right on the outset, you took a very neutral view on the morality of sex work. Um, you know, it was a very sex, it was a very neutral view on sex work itself and you focused on it as just labor uh can you tell us a little bit why about why you took this approach um so something we really wanted the space to do uh in the book was um kind of push back on this idea um that to be um supportive of sex worker rights and to be in solidarity with sex workers you have to um defends the sex industry as a whole or like defends the existence of sex work um because in our view that often leads to um yeah like I don't know like quite problematic politics around around yeah around like defending um the sex industry or like saying that sex work is good and as we kind of emphasize um a lot in the book like we live in this culture where like work is really kind of valorized and glorified and like treated as like it should be some like kind of fundamental expression of like yourself or at least your kind of own morality you know like the idea that like it's it's bad quote unquote like not to work it's bad to be like reliant on say the welfare state um and so when sex workers are heard when sex workers say sex work is work we're often heard as saying and that means it's good um and we, we really wanted to like kind of draw out these strands of the argument and be able to say actually like you don't have to defend the sex industry to be in solidarity with sex workers and when sex workers say sex workers work we don't mean and therefore it's good <laughs> to say something is work right really definitely not to say it's good <laughs> No, work sucks. Working is terrible. Yeah, I think I one of the things that I liked most about, especially the way that you, you know, the first few chapters, like um, beyond the introductory chapter, it's, you know, um, one of the chapters is called sex and one of the chapters is called work. And I think the way of opening up the book in this way where you both really do an incredible job of illustrating the nuance of that, because I think because we live in, in some ways like still such a puritanical uh, society where, you know, anything related to sex, like I, I think when you're talking about sex in the sex chapter, like really drawing out how 
like anti-sex work feminists are so problematic and have this kind of like purist view of things. But then there's also the other end of things where people kind of valorize sex work as work as being this like empowerment, really wonderful thing, which is also not the argument that y'all were making. Um, And I think you did a good job of being like, it can be that, but it also can be a whole bunch of other things just like work is that for a lot of people. So I do feel like it was like one of the more incredible ways to like ground and start, start the book for sure. Thank you. I'm going to tag on to that, Um, which yeah, in the section about sex, you kind of break down like the, um, I guess like binary view of like sex negativity or sex positivity and talk about like this kind of sex ambivalence, um, which is a term that like really struck a chord with me, especially this is not a direct quote, but the way you talked about it was like the right for everyone to um, have an ambivalence towards sex and know that it's can be like as much a space for trauma as it can be for like joint intimacy. Um, and I tried to look up that term and I didn't find much. Is that something that like you came up with? Is it something you'd heard somewhere else? Like what is the. Yeah, I think that's something we came up with. Um, I mean, it's possible that we also, it's possible it's been used elsewhere. Um, um, but yeah, I think we, that's, we put that in. Um, well, I heard it first here. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, that chapter was so interesting to write. And I really feel like in a way, the having the kind of uninterrupted space of the book um, and like kind of two years of like developing our thinking around what we wanted to say and how we wanted to say it um, really like uh, kind of a, a lot of like very intense like change and thinking went into that chapter um, because in a sense, like we were always going to say <laughs> that work is bad. We we're always, always going to say that borders are bad. We we're always going to say that criminalization is bad. But I think um, if kind of three years ago you had said to um, me and Juno, will you open, um, you know, this book with a chapter about sex? Uh, we would have been really surprised and like pushed, pushed that idea away because so much of sex work, so much of the activism that we do is trying to get people just in a way to stop talking about the sex of sex work right like Mm -hmm. you know when we deal with like policymakers in the UK or anti-prostitution feminists they're often like really kind of obsessed with the kind of gross like titillating like really objectifying like misogynist language about like what they imagine uh happens to like women's bodies in particular like in sex work um you talk pretty. Uh, you pr- talk, you talk in the book pretty detailed about the type of language that's used to describe prostitutes and sex workers, and it's just it's so cringeworthy. Like you read it, and it just makes you uncomfortable. Yeah, it's it's terrible. Yes, right. Like there are sections of the book that I I struggle like to quote if I'm like talking to someone about it, or or would struggle to like read aloud because like the language used is so appalling, and we like sort of have to quote it to like demonstrate that that is relatively common parlance amongst like certain kind of set of strands of feminism um but it's it's absolutely horrendous language yeah it's it's it was ter- <laughs> it was so it was so uncomfortable to read but yeah. it's the reality it's a, i mean i've heard it i've heard people talk like that about about sex workers it's terrible yeah yeah um but yeah it was it was also it's just such a relief um like it's and then yeah what we like we wanted to kind of empathize with why sex workers and people who want to defend sex workers often then like react to that and uh, like very understandably react to that by asserting you know the value of sex um 
and you know the emp empowering nature and it's healing and it's transformative and it's you know it's really like legitimate in all these different ways because sex is so legitimate um which you know is sort of fine on an individual level but like as we it's it's not really a kind of good um political argument for defending um sex work and sex worker rights because workers rights um particularly for the most marginalized workers shouldn't be dependent on uh making an argument that the work they're doing is is good or bad because most people under capitalism aren't doing work that is good right right yeah i think it's it's it taps into something so critical just in general which i think like finding meaningful work under capitalism is like a dream that I think we're all killing in some ways. Um, yeah. And I think you talk about that really well, as well as really give a voice to um, people who are in the sex, sex work industry who have pretty traumatic experiences and, and not using that as a way to shame the sex work that they're doing, but have a critical eye towards this like glorification of sex work that can happen in leftist circles. And I thought that that, yeah, towing that line is like, it was, a, it was an incredible way to open the book for sure. Thank you. Yeah. I, um, that was just making me think like in college, I took a class on like sex work policy where we like compared different, um, like countries laws. Mm -hmm. Um, but in that class, that was, I would say, one of the classes that went towards, like, me radicalizing and being so anti-capitalism. And I remember, like, my friend in that class said, like, you know, all jobs under capitalism are, like, violent and especially towards, like, you know, women and non-binary folk. And, yeah, that just really struck a chord with me. And I liked that part a lot. It was a very nice intersectional uh, analysis of sex work because it, 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 you, you talk about it through a very sort of class analysis lens, but you also bring in gender, race, uh, immigration status. I mean, there's even an, an internal class hierarchy within sex work, which is something I didn't even think about. Um, the types of sex worker and, and what the sex worker, uh, what race the sex worker is, what their immigration status is, whether... Um, whether or not they have a disability, whether they work indoors or outdoors. I mean, this really gets into the nitty gritty of the life of all different types of sex workers all over the world. Um, and it's, it's, it's fascinating. And it's not something I've ever really read before in this way. Um, yeah, it, it was really incredible. And um, you, you talk, you, you talk a lot about the Nordic model. Uh-huh. Um, in the book and other models that seek to sort of decriminalize sex work for the seller, but not for the buyer and other ways in which policies that are sold as harm reduction, mm -hmm. um, an attempt, an, an attempt to save the sex worker. And then you demonstrate how, even when this approach is taken, it isn't successful. And what's worse, laws meant to protect the women are still applied unevenly because of the classism and racism, um, where poor or poorer or otherwise more marginalized women, those who are undocumented, trans, you know, members of the indigenous nations of, of wherever this wherever it is, um, people, who, women who aren't white, are still punished. Uh, while white or more elite sex workers aren't. So can you can you talk a little bit more about this intersectionality and, and why you approached it this way? Um, so I guess, like, when you... Obviously, me and Juno, being 
uh, prostitutes ourselves and like having spent like a lot of time organizing around sex worker rights issues um we're like very concerned with the various kinds of harms that are done to sex workers and when you kind of start from like that being your like like number one priority um the kind of it it feels very clear like that the heart like so I don't know again like anti-prostitution feminism for example um again like kind of loves to um uh like really focus on and talk about uh the kind of interpersonal violence that sex workers are subject to uh within prostitution so you know violence from clients violence from managers violence from partners and like obviously that's a really important form of violence to talk about um but I think like when um you're like really empathizing with people who sell sex it's so obvious that that is just one strand of the kinds of violence that sex workers are subject to so you know there's also the violence of eviction and the threat of eviction the violence of uh, immigration enforcement and deportation you know the violence of poverty um the violence of racist policing um so i think kind of starting from um that perspective um kind of leads us to an analysis where like hopefully we're able to like think about all of these kinds of violences and all the ways in which they you know produce and facilitate each other and the ways in which like we might begin to start unpicking them um i mean it's really interesting like um obviously you uh, just mentioned that like uh, the nordic model for example is kind of sold as like harm reduction um, and that's sort of interesting to think about from like a US perspective, right? Because like yeah. you have so much criminalization um, that I've, I've certainly seen um, people kind of argue that the Nordic model in the US would be uh, like would be harm reduction and like would be an improvement because like obviously it couldn't possibly be as bad as like full criminalization. And to an extent that is true, um, it's just that like changing prostitution law at all is this huge effort uh, and you don't want to change it to something that is also really harmful and like leaves room for so much of the exact same kinds of state violence and economic violence and interpersonal violence that um, like the Nordic model, you know, creates and facilitates in exactly the same way. Um, and also just like the situation in the US, um, as we talk about in the book, is so is so intense and it's so um like obviously there's loads of amazing kind of activism um around att- attempting to unpick like some of the forms of violence um that sex workers are subject to, um, particularly at the hands of the state. Right. Um and yeah, and yet like terms like harm reduction and terms like decriminalization are like sometimes it seems almost like co-opted by kind of anti-prostitution feminists or um i don't know we quote someone in the book uh who writes this kind of amazing personal essay um for i think it was for vox anyway um about basically um using her own experience to argue that like prison uh is useful for women in prostitution um and it's like it's written in this amazing tone that's like really reminiscent of like you know really like the, the classic like first person essay that like women uh journalists or like women writers are expected to produce right like you know this very kind of relatable tone that like it takes you from everything to like those old exo jane essays that were like um it happened to me i um oh, you know something ridiculous about yoga or nail polish or whatever um 
through to like stuff that's like much more serious. Yeah. Um, but it's just like, it's just amazing to see. Uh, it just felt it, looking at this kind of thing, it feels like it's double co-option. It's like this, this like attempt to like sell harm reduction, um, sell like criminalization as a form of harm reduction and uh, to like you inhabit this like very like relatable um, kind of chatty, like Jezebel like voice to do so. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's just amazing. It's horrifying and amazing. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to talk about the Nordic model a little more. I know I recently saw that um, Jeremy Corbyn was advocating for implementing the Nordic model, um, which I was about to tweet about and then got like very nervous that all these people were going to come for me because he has big, big fans. Mm -hmm. um, big fans. Yeah, so um, I'm not insulting him. I think that he has this one bad idea that I would like to address. Um, and I mean, same goes for like, you know, Bernie who supported Sesta Fosta. And so we have these like major like, you know, quote unquote left politicians, but they still have problematic views of sex work and policy. And so uh, this is kind of a big question. I'm just want like, how do we, how do we address that and like, educate like left spaces but specific like the politicians that actually have control over it into you know like knowing what policy they should actually be advocating for can right. i jump in here just really quickly and i Please think do. i think <laughs> I, i've been thinking about this a lot too and for me what i think that it taps into in a lot of ways is how deeply um, the heteronormative nuclear family is like how that specific um, imagery and what that means and what when that was created in history and how tied up that is in capitalism and like anything that seeks to threaten that normative model um, I think is like the last thing that these like old white dude politicians are going to be like able to unravel I mean this has just been my first like thought on it because I think the more and more we just see like people holding up the sacredness or the so-called sacredness of like the reproduction of labor through this like heteronormative nuclear family model and like anything that could possibly threaten or or move outside of that feels like even in left circles like one of the last things that people are going to touch yeah. yeah, well, because for uh, uh, since the since it happened, I've been wondering, like, how can all these people still be like full Bernie stands and not even address like, you know, how we went on Sesta Fossa and some other some other things that I'm not going to go into now. But I thought like, wow, do people just not care? And then more recently, I've been thinking or like, do they like his views on that? Because people don't want to have to address that I don't know it's just very it's very complicated and upsetting to me I think with both Bernie and Corbyn there's I mean obviously they're both like very flawed politicians in lots of ways um like I, in the UK um uh the Tory party have just announced a huge increase in funding for the police and I've seen a lot of people um on the left be very unhappy with Corbyn uh, over this because he has been for the last like couple of months it feels like every time he said anything about austerity or cuts to the welfare state it's always been like couched in his terms of like oh and the police have had their funding cut as well and mm. now 
And that's like, oh, well done, you've succeeded in pushing the Tory party into into giving more money to the cops. Like, fucking well done. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And like, you know, with Bernie as well, I've seen like a bunch of criticism of um, him not being so good on like US foreign, foreign policy and militarism. And I guess like, it just feels like people are so desperate for any alternative um, to, you know, this kind of horrible right-wing juggernauts that they will overlook a bunch of stuff. Um, and like with, with Corbyn, it feels like the Corbyn leadership, uh, loads of people on the left were like so hopeful, obviously, when he uh, won the leadership election and then won the leadership election again. <laughs> um, yeah. And um, lots of stuff since has felt like he's really been um, kind of salami slicing off the things that made him so exciting. You know, like he used to be an incredibly uh, principled politician in terms of like immigration and defending migrants' rights. And increasingly he doesn't seem to be doing that anymore. And then there's been this stuff about like push pushing for the police to have better funding. Um, and yeah, on sex work, um, you know, for years actually, he uh, and John McDonnell, his shadow chancellor, um, so like the next, yeah, he's like right-hand man, uh, were like really um, supportive of sex worker rights and they would be, you know, they'd be the only politicians at any like sex worker related events in London. Um, so sex workers were really excited when uh, Corbyn won um, and then, yeah, his recent comments weren't terribly heartening. Um, what did I mean, he say? Oh, he just, I mean, it wasn't even that clear. I think he, um, he, he just said something like, oh, you know, people have been talking to me about the Nordic model and, like, that seems good, I guess. Like, we want to decriminalise women and criminalise the clients, right? And it, it's just like, no, Jeremy, like, you no. used <laughs> Yeah. Really recently you understood that this was really harmful to people who sell sex. What's happened? Mm. Right, but that's think, why, like, it. yeah, it seems like, you know, those politicians are, like, people we would maybe more be able to, like, lobby onto our side, but it's also there's so much misguided <laughs> well yeah women's, women's issues always also if if we know anything about any type of leftist history um our issues always get put on the back burner Wait your turn when, when the left um takes power yeah yeah i was saying wait your turn to women's rights not to yeah. you <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh no i know no, but you're exactly right. Yeah, wait your turn, not now. Like, yeah, right. yeah. that's exactly what we're told. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to your issues later. We're, yeah. we're working on something. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think for, like, sex worker organizers in the UK, we have been trying to be a bit more kind of strategic about how we go about about this. Um, and I'm fairly confident that no one who strongly disagrees with this will actually be listening to this podcast. Um, so I'm just going <laughs> to like talk, I yeah. guess, about like, you know, like, um, so we've been trying to pass, um, like the Labour Party, for example, is ostensibly, you know, a democratic organisation, albeit it's also very bureaucratic. Um, so like, if you can pass enough motions in support of sex worker rights at like the very bottom of the kind of grassroots of it, then that like, filters up in a democratic way over time if you keep pushing obviously um and yeah we've been we've been uh, going to we went to the most recent labor party conference in liverpool um and like talked to a lot of delegates there um 
so I think, yeah, I think rather than kind of stressing out too much about these like figureheads like um, Bernie and Corbyn, we're trying to think like, okay, so, you know, maybe this will take 10 years, but like, let's start right at the bottom and like build a really solid foundation of like local Labour Party uh, groups supporting decrim and supporting sex worker rights. And then like that will like move up. The, the chain of the Labour Party. This is a, like switching gears a little bit. <laughs> I was curious what your favorite uh, part was about putting this book together. <laughs> um, ooh, good question. I mean, obviously, well, <laughs> like the, the, the co-working aspects uh, in terms of like stuff that's kind of external to the text, the co-working aspect of like writing it with Juno was easily the favorite part. Like, um, you know, like it felt like a really amazing project to be working um, with someone who I like love and admire so much um, and like developing our thinking together in this like really intense way. Um, so that was great. Um, I guess, I don't know, for me in terms of like the actual book, I sort of feel like um, the Borders chapter uh in particular feels like chapter if it, it feels really like our baby like we really agonized over its content and we were really anxious that um we would get a lot of uh um criticism for the content of it um and in fact we haven't we've had loads of really positive feedback um particularly about i mean about the whole book but particularly about the borders chapter which is um, amazing because it felt it felt really risky to write, even though it, we couldn't really have written anything else because ultimately, like that's what we think, and you know we couldn't have we couldn't have said anything else. Um, Absolutely. Do you, could could you? Um, and if you don't feel comfortable uh, giving anything away, um, that's fine too. But would you feel comfortable sharing like the main takeaways from that chapter? So um, basically, we are critical both of kind of mainstream anti-trafficking discourses um, and of the ways in which the sex worker rights movement has sometimes talked about trafficking. Mm. Um, So in terms of kind of mainstream anti-trafficking discourses, we uh, talk about um, the way in which these discourses kind of produce this figure of like the kind of villainous um, like trafficker. And like he becomes like the kind of central figure uh, and that like sucks away um, all possibility of analysis for the way in which like actually his power is facilitated and produced by the criminalization of migration in particular, Uh, like not even really the criminalization of prostitution, um, at least in a UK context. Uh, but like the the ways in which if people need to migrate and cross borders without papers, um, then they are by definition pushed into the hands of uh, people who are willing to break the law um, to help them cross those borders for a price. Um, and that obviously, you know, means that they have no power to like um, negotiate a kind of any kind of like fair um, transaction. And then when they're on arrival and working in the destination country, they, um, again, like have no rights because, uh, you know, because making yourself visible as an undocumented person kind of seeking redress for like exploitation in the workplace 
uh, will often like lead to your deportation. Um, mm. And so we want to like, yeah, we want to make the argument that like ultimately those things, you know, the criminalization of migration is what um, produces the context where exploitation and harm happen. Um, uh, I think like a kind of a useful analogy um, that we make in the book that I think helps other feminists uh, understand this is we talk about how like obviously the feminist movements, um, you know, rightly decries people who, um, you know, in a criminalized context where abortion is criminalized would charge, you know, a lot of money to perform exploitative backstreet abortions. But we would also like hope that the feminist movement wouldn't imagine that those people would be these kind of aberrant villains who come from nowhere. Um, you know, they are uh, produced by the criminalization of abortion and the policy solution that will put them out of business isn't just cracking down on them, um, which will just lead to, you know, new people springing up, providing the same service. Um, the policy solution that will put them out of business is access to safe, legal, free abortion services mm -hmm. um, and in exactly the same way if you're worried about people being uh, exploited during the process of migration or like when they are working and undocumented the policy solution that will stop that from happening is not cracking down on these kind of aberrant uh, villains but it's in it's putting in system uh, in place a system that enables people to migrate safely and cheaply and to work with access to labor rights mm. and other kinds of rights on arrival in a destination country um but yeah it's but then really having incredible thank you <laughs> having <laughs> talked about then so right so that's like the main you know our criticism of kind of mainstream anti-trafficking discourse um and then we also are kind of critical of the sex worker rights movement because i think we feel like too often sex workers have not wanted to get into the state uh, the role that the state and borders and immigration enforcement play and so we just say oh well sex work and trafficking are totally different they're totally different things and the effect of that is to say like we don't want to talk about trafficking which is like we really empathize with why that happens because like sex workers um when we advocate for our rights are like you know we're kind of hit over the head with this topic of trafficking as if it's a counter argument to what we're saying which is which is ridiculous right like it should be obvious that if a worker is saying this kind of worker needs more rights yeah. then they're by definition not supporting the exploitation of those workers right um, <laughs> but you know people people use people use the idea of trafficking or the kind of specter of trafficking as like a, a one word counterpoint to sex workers organizing and that's really frustrating um but it's not good enough to just be saying oh well it's totally different it, we, it's none of our business we don't want to talk about it we should be get we should be getting more comfortable with saying you know actually what produces exploitation harm is immigration enforcement mm. um so yeah it's a kind of attempt to um gently uh, criticize the movement um in this regard as well absolutely yeah i think another frustrating thing about people always like bringing up sex trafficking to counter like sex work rights is that people don't do that with other industries and sex actually isn't the most common form of trafficking. It's obviously terrible. They're all terrible, but um, like other low wage labor has higher numbers for trafficking and we're not like cracking down on the, you know, food industry. Mm -hmm. So it's just frustrating when it's only being used for like, it's only being used to counter sex work rights. It's not being right. used to further other like labor rights as well. Right. And like, the, like, yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because like, so America is such a 
clear example of the fact that the criminalization of prostitution doesn't solve sex trafficking because if right. if the criminalization of prostitution um was was the policy solution that would lead to the eradication of sex trafficking then america would have no sex trafficking because you guys criminalize prostitution everywhere in all forms you know in like the most intense ways um yes. and yet america has like really intense forms of trafficking yeah. and again like you know as i was talking about kind of what was an immigration just now I was, I was thinking that like um particularly in like a u.s context it feels like a lot of um kind of i guess like domestic trafficking mm. uh feels really driven um by things like lack of access to housing lack of access to healthcare you know, lack of access to uh, mainstream forms of employment once people have got a criminal record. Um, and like, it's it feels really obvious that like those kinds of exploitation harm where they're happening in say the United States are happening because there's almost no welfare state for people to fall back on. Um, and like the most, the most profound like anti-trafficking measures that would like really make a huge difference in, in say the US isn't another law against prostitution. It would be ensuring that everyone had access to safe, stable housing, you know, ensuring that everyone had access to healthcare, you know, ensuring that um, LGBTQ uh, teens who had like, you know, had run away from home had access to services that were like gender affirming, mm -hmm. um, you know, any, any one of those things would like massively reduce the kinds of harm and exploitation that get called sex trafficking. Not the law against prostitution, which obviously doesn't work, because if it worked, you wouldn't have any trafficking. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, um, I wanted to ask about Swarm, which you and um, Juno are both a part of before. Um, I moved to New York a few months ago, but before that I was living in D.C. and I worked with an organization called HIPS, which is harm reduction for sex work and drug users. So mm -hmm. we had a whole like array of services there were like needle exchanges condoms std testing other like healthcare. um we had a hotline for people to call we had like um hot food so just like kind of anything that would fit into like offering like direct aid mm -hmm. for harm reduction um and that was like something really powerful for me but so hopefully this conversation will like you know, motivate people. And I was wondering like what your organization does and like how other people could get involved or what you think is like important ways for people to help with sex work. Um, so Swarm uh, is less um, kind of service uh, focused than it sounds like HIPS is. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, they had some advocacy, but we were, it was more focused on just like offering kind of direct aid. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Um, yeah, so Swarm um, is about 10 years old and uh, it is it runs kind of um, these like drop-in breakfast sessions uh, for sex workers in London uh, and Glasgow and I think also newly in Leeds. Um, and it mostly what we do is kind of advocacy um, so yeah, trying to push back on uh, fresh attempts to criminalise uh, sex work in various ways, um, which is obviously, um, you know, feels like pushing a boulder uphill again and again. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know that, like, yeah, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> exhaustion. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, I saw um, something uh, Mariam Carver, uh, Prison Culture, tweeted a while ago uh, was really uh, kind of amazing for me. She tweeted something like, organising work is mostly failure. Um, <laughs> and then she followed up with like something like, of course it is, like, you know, you're fighting these huge, incredibly powerful, incredibly well-resourced, like, structural systems mm-hmm. um so like it would be surprising if it wasn't mostly failure and like that's not a, basically like the implication was like that's not a reason to like stop doing it right. you have to just like accept that and keep at it and I was like oh my god that's such like it was just like such a light bulb moment like I was like oh yes that's true and it, it, it's like this this sudden like understanding of like why it feels like a lot of the work we do is failure and it's like but in like this really forgiving way it's like of course it is like we're fighting these huge things yeah you just keep going yeah literally the like largest uh structural oppression like institutions pressing down on you every step of the way (laughs) and it's like any win is like its own absolute incredible thing because of that because of that intense like pushing down on everything that you might be doing yeah yeah um absolutely I think so in the UK um obviously at the moment our whole politics are like consumed with Brexit um and probably will be for the next uh decade which is kind of terrifying um yeah yeah, Um. I think people people really want in the kind of immediate aftermath of Sester Foster passing in the US, people were really worried that um, we would get a UK-style Sester Foster bill. Mm. Um, just because I think, I think like, anything, like, I think introducing the Nordic model, for example, would be too much of a, like, big commitment for the government that is, you know, struggling to implement Brexit. Mm. Um, but all, all governments everywhere um, love a kind of, you know, everyone like it's like everyone is against trafficking, and everyone kind of loves tech. And if, mm. so, everyone thinks there must be like this simple tech solution to trafficking, right? Like we'll just implement Sester Foster in the UK, um, and that will be great. And who could possibly oppose that? Mm. Um, so, I think like that's kind of certainly not off the horizon in terms of like possibilities of like terrible things happening mm. uh, in medium term for us. No. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, it's going so well here. <laughs> right. Yeah, Nothing's like, going well here. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was curious how your book has been received so far. Really positively. Yes. Um, yeah. I've seen so many like tweets and like, yeah, I've seen a lot of positive feedback about yeah. it. Yeah. It's, a, it's an incredibly well-written book and it's very cogent and it makes extremely strong arguments. Um, so I'm not surprised. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, we were when we were writing it, we were really um, like stressed out by the idea of like like it was like we were constantly arguing in our heads with like seemingly like hundreds of different like kinds of critical comments. Like sure, I guess like sure. yeah, like mostly from like anti-prostitution feminists or whatever. Mm. Um, and it felt like we were kind of driving ourselves up the wall a bit and like. Yeah, it's, it's hard to, like, not hear. When you're so immersed in these conversations and have been for so long, it's hard to, like, um, sort of 
not write an argument that just like zigzags wildly back and forth because you're constantly trying to preempt people's criticisms. Sure. And I think mostly managed to avoid doing that. But I, I am kind of, um, uh, I wasn't sure whether we would get like um, a kind of couple of really savage reviews uh, from people who disagree with our politics or whether they would ignore us. And um, most, so far they seem to have ignored us, mm. which is sort of flattering in a way, I think. <laughs> I think it's it exemplifies like the general kind of anti-prostitution feminist approach to sex worker rights arguments, uh, which is because they often don't seem to have an answer for like the problems that we raise. So things like you know, under the Nordic model, uh, sex workers are still routinely arrested, for example. Like that's a pretty big problem for us and it also should be a pretty big problem for them because they ostensibly claim not to want any sex working women to be arrested for mm -hmm. sex um but like because they're so invested in the nordic model they um sort of aren't even really interested in engaging with that criticism and so they like pretend they haven't heard it so that so as not to have to engage with it um and i sort of feel like the reaction to our book is like another example of that like um i guess people you know people don't want to have to engage like people people are desperate to caricature the sex worker rights movement as like this um you know we're just we're frivolous we love empowerment we're like a bunch of silly girls who have never thought about capitalism um, <laughs> and when something comes along that would be hard to caricature in that way the response mostly seems to be to ignore it <laughs> yeah talking about the feedback just because um Maybe remind me because I wrote I wrote a review slash summary for Bus Magazine actually before I knew we were doing this podcast. Um, but when it went out on Twitter, someone commented being like saying that sex work is work without like a nuanced like look into it is also harmful. And I'm pretty sure it was you, Molly, that commented being like, who's doing that? Yeah, no, that was Juno. That was <laughs> oh, that was Juno. OK, well, that was my uh, my review. Um, yeah, I love that. Right, right. And um, yeah. <laughs> Because it was just the perfect response. Because yeah, and then they were just like, oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> Someone conceded that they were wrong on Twitter? No. <laughs> I mean, they sort of, it was more like they slunk away. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, they had nothing else to add. They were like, oh, wait. <laughs> uh, yeah. Amazing. So, okay. So one, I haven't read a lot of stuff about sex workers, sex workers. My, my, my entire... You know, I've always been a feminist and my entire worldview and opinions about sex work and sex workers has always been, what do the sex workers say they need? Okay, well, let's just do that. Um, like, I, I've always sort of deferred to whatever group is is oppressed and marginalized. What is it that they want? What is it that they need? Okay, then that should be the policy. Um, but you make, a, you make a much more nuanced argument in this book and in that that's not enough because you have a lot of liberal feminists, um, I think well-meaning women um, and, and activists who really see sex workers as nothing but victims and they moralize on the sex part of it and they support these policies like the Nordic model without really looking into how what the outcomes of it are fully um, and having no class analysis mm -hmm. in sex work um, whatsoever. But one walks away from this book really convinced that any sort of band-aid slapped onto sex work policies, any type of harm reduction focused policies for, for prostitutes, you know, 
to, to cover up loopholes or to prevent ad adverse outcomes in reality are really tenuous and unevenly applied. And you come away fully realizing that the only way to really protect these workers is to see their work as work and with no part of the supplier demand chain interrupted by criminalization. Um, combined with an effort on changing the material conditions of these workers, uh, if we want to reduce the prevalence of sex work. Um, would you say that this is sort of an accurate depiction of, of what your goals are? Um, is it really that you want sex work in and of itself to no longer exist or to be um, reduced, but through very, very cohesive and well thought through policies? Mm, yeah, good question. And this is kind of contentious within the sex worker rights movement. Um, mm -hmm. Me and Gino are in several um, kind of uh, organizing WhatsApp groups that every couple of months, uh, there's a kind of angry argument over who wants sex work ultimately to be abolished and who thinks that if we achieve a kind of communist utopia, there will still be sex work happening. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes I kind of laugh to myself about like why this argument recurs like relatively often because like obviously, well, not obviously, but I assume that none of us are going to live to see a communist utopia, you know, in our lifetimes, although that doesn't mean that we should not be struggling for it. Um, so in a sense, it's really abstract and disconnected from you know, the day-to-day -day reality of, like, what we're trying to achieve together, right? But also, right. I totally, I understand why this comes up as well, because, like, you know, we're, any kind of organising work is about, like, collectively, like, affirming that you're working together towards a better world, even if that better world feels, like, very far in the distance. And, you know, what could, in a way, be, like, a more kind of, um, for sex workers what could be a more like profound way of like talking about what kind of better world we want than like arguing about whether or not sex work will exist in the in the forthcoming better world um so i think me and juno uh both take the position that uh we would like to see sex work uh reduced or potentially even abolished um at least in terms of prostitution, um, I feel sort of like, at least I think porn is a bit more complicated because uh, humans ever since the beginning of history and long before uh, the development of capitalism have tended to want to like look at or think about uh, other humans fucking, right? So yeah. like mm -hmm. it sort of doesn't, wouldn't surprise me if like some kind of like porn like persisted into a communist utopia. Um, but I think prostitution... Uh, ultimately is a symptom of a society that is really uh, unequal um, and that when we achieve a much better society where you know resources are distributed uh, on the basis of need um, no one will need to sell sex and as a result no one or almost no one will be selling sex yeah and like I don't know it's, it's funny because like there are lots of you know anti-prostitution feminists you know also obviously want to achieve a world where no one is selling sex uh it's just the mistake they make is to think that you can achieve that through policing and criminalization right which of course doesn't change like the material reasons why sex workers are selling sex why people right. go out on the street and like if you don't change those conditions then people will still need to sell sex so they will find a way to, to sell sex um you know the only the only way to like 
uh, reduce or abolish the sex industry um, at all. And also the only way to even attempt to do that without harming sex workers is by uh, ensuring that people have the resources they need. Um, yeah, I think we were also a bit worried in, in a way that like the end of our book would be a bit of an anticlimax because um, we both felt like when it comes to prostitution policy, um, people get really fixated on the idea of kind of a single legal model as like a silver bullet that will solve everything. And especially because like prostitution is such a kind of rich symbolic terrain um, in terms of like how people feel about womanhood and how people feel about patriarchy and how people feel about capitalism and power and all these kinds of things. So like people, um, people get kind of fixated on this idea of like one kind of prostitution policy will not only like solve quote unquote prostitution, but it will like, it kind of resonates with all these feelings that they have about these like other big important abstract things. Mm -hmm. um, and that's like why people I think get so invested in the Nordic model in part, um, you know, because they feel like it represents a kind of toppling of patriarchy, even though that's ridiculous because like it further empowers the police and like also like the police are a patriarchal institution, obviously, and it impoverishes sex workers and you can't fight patriarchy by making women who sell sex poorer and more precarious, vulnerable to violence. Right. Um, I think like people really invest themselves in it in this, in this kind of symbolic way is like this idea that will, will topple patriarchy and we didn't want to reproduce the same kind of thinking we didn't want people to reach the end of our book and be told like okay so decriminalization will solve all of sex workers problems um, and everything will be great so long as we decriminalize sex work because like that's not true like sex work happens you know within this whole nexus of uh, you know, gendered oppression and white supremacy and capitalism and borders and like decriminalization is absolutely like a necessary part of the struggle for like sex worker safety and liberation. But it's it's definitely it's also not sufficient. Like all of these things also have to be um, have to be unpicked. Amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much for everything. Um, we're at about time. And so I was wondering if there was anything else you'd like to add or share or say before we kind of uh, bid you adieu for now. Um, no, I think that's good. Do we want to um, read a little excerpt? Yeah, I do have <laughs> I do have a quote, if it's OK with Molly, um, a little bit from the conclusion. Um, Perfect. It, it, it just, it was great. So in the conclusion, you say the following. We aren't asking you to love the sex industry. We certainly don't. We are asking that your disgust with the sex industry and with the men, the punters, doesn't overtake your ability to empathize with the people who sell sex. A key struggle that sex workers face in feminist spaces is trying to move people past their sense of what prostitution symbolizes to grapple with what the criminalization of prostitution materially does to the people who sell sex. That's great. Yeah. Which is great. That's the perfect thing to end with. That is also, I also use part of that quote to end the review slash you summary do. that I wrote. So it's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> great minds. Great minds. They think alike. <laughs> Uh, amazing thank you well thank you so, Molly, so much for joining us thank you so much yeah this is great <laughs> wow that was like 
a really wonderful episode. The book is really amazing. We really loved the book and we, we have a lot of gratitude to Molly and and to Juno, of course, as well uh, for for sharing her expertise um, on our show. Now that Molly's gone, I'm going to give my real opinion of the book, which is that it's awesome. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, no, but it's super good. Um, and Verso Books, who published it, is having a 50% off sale until January 1st. So it's a good time to order it. Um, I also just ordered some other Verso books. I got the letters from Rosa Luxemburg. Mm. Um, so it's a really good time to order books, but especially this one. Oh, man. Verso's going to Verso's gonna break my bank. Um, Verso sponsor us. <laughs> Verso, yeah. Verso sponsor <laughs> season of the bitch. Um <laughs> So this is our Patreon pitch. Do you do you guys like our podcast? Awesome. So do we. Uh, we spend we spend lots of hours creating and researching and reading and editing and reaching out for interviews and reading books and articles and blogs and listening to other podcasts and you know all this so we can bring you all current information to make you all better informed socialists and feminists. And we love what we do and we think we're pretty good at it. And we think we would be even better at it with a little bit more money. So we could do a little bit more stuff. So if you've got an extra few dollars a month, why don't you throw it our way? We'd really appreciate it. Absolutely. It really (laughs) helps. (laughs) Please. Um, (laughs) Um, Also, you know, you can always reach us, um, on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at Season of the Bee. If you have any um, things that you'd like to hear an episode on or if you have any leads on guests or anything like that that you think would be good a good fit for us to interview, you can always email us, seasonofthebee at gmail.com. Um, and, yeah, rate, review, subscribe on iTunes because that is always a really fun thing to read your little reviews. It's... <laughs> Very fun, especially when they're super nice. <laughs> I was going to write us a review, and then I realized people could see my name. <laughs> I was like, oh, maybe not. <laughs> Amazing. Well, I love you both so much. Love you. Love you. Love you. Thanks so much. Bye. Season of the Bitch. <laughs>